How are y'all doing tonight? We doing good? Awesome. Do we have any football fans in the crowd tonight? Got some football fans? All right. All right. Where are my Bucks fans at? Any Bucks fans? Boo. Pablo, you don't like the Bucks? How many people are excited Tom Brady's back for another season? Came out of retirement, came back for another season. Unfortunately, however, I'm not a Bucks fan. That's a, that's a lot more cheers than I expected to receive. I'm not a Bucks fan, and I blame my dad for this. All right, my dad, he grew me up a Chicago Bears fan. A Chicago. Do we have any Chicago Bears fans in the room? You see, we don't have any Chicago Bears fans. Justin Fields, I like that. We don't have any Chicago Bears fans in the room because being a Chicago Bears fan means your life is just full of disappointment. It means your life, it just stinks. You're never any good. Your team stinks. You, you never really have anything to cheer for. But you know, back in 2017, that was all supposed to change. You see, in 2017, the Bears had the third pick in the NFL draft. And they were going to choose a quarterback, a position that we desperately needed to fill. And as a Bears fan, I was super excited because in this draft, there were a lot of QBs that showed a lot of potential. There was a lot of QBs that looked like they were going to do a great job in the NFL, like they would lead their team to do amazing things. So I was excited. Like, yes, the Bears are finally going to get a quarterback. That's good. But then on draft night in 2017, the Bears decided to draft a guy by the name of Mitchell Trubisky. You can laugh. You can laugh. They decided to draft a guy by the name of Mitchell Trubisky out of North Carolina. And I just remember sitting there on draft night just being extremely angry. Like, why would they draft this guy? Who, who is this guy? Like, why would they do this? I thought they were going to finally pick a good quarterback. But the Bears organization, they, they told us, all, all of us fans, that he was going to be our guy. That, that Mitch was going to do a good job, that he was going to lead our team, that he was going to take us on so many successful seasons that would go in long playoff runs and then possibly even to the Super Bowl. So the organization, they built up all these expectations in my mind, these expectations that he was going to be a great quarterback. But if any of you know anything about the NFL, you'll know that that was all just a lie. We found out in the four years that he was our quarterback that he was just terrible. He couldn't lead the team. He couldn't run the offense. And in the four years that he was there, he only made the playoffs twice. And both times, he lost. So as a Bears fan, watching him play, I was just extremely disappointed. I had all these expectations for how our team was going to do, for how our team was going to be in the coming years. But he failed to meet any of those expectations. We didn't win any games. We didn't go to the Super Bowl. He wasn't our guy for the future. And because of this, because he didn't meet our expectations, we just kicked him to the curb. We're like, we don't want you anymore. You can go to another team. Like, you're not good enough. And you see, this happens all the time in the sports world. 
player is coming out of college. They're, they're looked at as going to be the next best thing. Experts say that they're going to be the next Michael Jordan or the next Tom Brady, that they're going to do all of these amazing things in their professional sport. But then if they don't meet those expectations, if they don't do what everybody thought they were going to do, they're looked down upon. They're considered failures. They're considered busts. And they're not given a second chance. But tonight, what we're going to see is that this doesn't just happen in the sports world. That this happens all the time in the real world. And we also see this same thing happen to Jesus thousands of years ago. You see, when Jesus came to earth, some people thought that he was coming to be something that he wasn't. They had all these expectations about who he was going to be and what he was going to do. But when he didn't meet those expectations, they turned on him. They hated him because he didn't come to do what they thought he was going to do. So tonight we're going to continue our series, Journey to the Cross. And throughout this series, we've been looking at the final moments of Jesus' life. Something that we've never really done before on a Wednesday night. But the goal of this series was to help set our hearts and our minds on the importance of Easter. To help us recognize the significance of what happened so many years ago. And to realize that these events in our life, they, they still have relevance in our life today. So tonight what we're going to be looking at is Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. And Jesus' trial before Pilate. You see, we can read about all of these events in each of the four gospel accounts. And when we read about them, we find that the, these three events, they happen after the Last Supper and after the Garden of Gethsemane. And it all starts with Judas's betrayal of Jesus. You see, Judas, he's left the Last Supper because Jesus outed him as the one who was going to betray him. And when he leaves the Last Supper, he goes to make arrangements with the chief priest to have Jesus arrested. And while Judas is doing that, while Judas is going to make these arrangements, Jesus is finishing up his final teaching session with his disciples. And once they finish, once the Last Supper is over, Jesus and some of those disciples, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And while, when Jesus is there, we saw last week that, that he goes by himself to pray and he pours his heart and his soul out to God. And when he is finished praying, he goes back to where his disciples are, and he finds them sleeping. And he's like, come on, guys, wake up. It's time to get up because my betrayer is here. It's time for my betrayal to happen. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight in Matthew 26, verse 47. Here we read, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. So here we see Judas, and, and he strolled up to where Jesus and the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see that Ju Judas isn't alone. He's not by himself. He, he hasn't just come by himself to betray Jesus, but with him is a giant mob of people. Like, I want you to realize that this isn't just a group of about 50 to 100 people. 
This is believed to be a group of over 800 people there to see Jesus arrested. And this isn't just a peaceful crowd of people who are there all happy and smiling, but this is a group of people who are armed with swords and clubs. Like they're there ready to do whatever it takes to get Jesus arrested. And so Judas, he's come up with a plan with this mob. He's like, all right, the guy that I go up and kiss, that's going to be the guy we're going to arrest. That's going to be Jesus. So Judas, he steps forward out of the mob, acting like nothing weird is going on, like there's not just this giant group of 800 people behind him. And he's like, hey, Jesus, hey, hey, teacher, how are you doing? Oh, oh, hey, let me come up, let me kiss you, let me greet you like, like we're just a good friends. Like I'm not here to betray you. Now, if me or you were in, in Jesus' shoes in this moment, we probably would have been disgusted at what was going on. Like this guy that we know who is here to betray me, he has just come up and greeted me like I'm just his friend. Like, like, like I'm just so close with him, like I don't know why he's here. You know, some of us, we would have been frustrated. We might have tried to push Judas away. Or I mean, some of you in here, you might have even tried to throw a punch at him. Like how dare you come up and kiss me? But Jesus, who knows exactly why he's here, doesn't do any of this. He doesn't fight Judas. He doesn't push him away. Instead, he greets his kiss. And when Judas has backed away, he turns and looks at him and says, do what you came for, friend. Do what you came for, Judas. Have me arrested. I know why you're here. Just do what you came for. You see, Jesus doesn't fight back because he knows that this is his way to the cross. And so once the mob, they step forward and they arrest Jesus, they take him to face trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Sanhedrin was the highest ruling council of the Jews. It was made up of about 70 members who were Sadducees, Pharisees, and priests, all of whom were religious leaders during that day. And the leader of the Sanhedrin was a man by the name of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And you see, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they wanted to have Jesus arrested because they wanted to have Jesus put to death. They wanted Jesus out of the way because of how much they despised him, because he went against what they thought. And so they wanted to put Jesus to death, but under Roman law, they had no authority to enforce the death penalty. So to be able to get Jesus to be put to death, they had to first decide his guilt under Jewish law. And in Matthew 26, 57, we read, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So the mob, after they've arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they take Jesus to face trial before the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas, the high priest's house. And what I want you to see here is that this is highly unusual. Trials before the Sanhedrin didn't typically happen at the high priest's house. Instead, these trials, they were supposed to take place in the Jewish temple. But because it was nighttime, the temple was closed. So the Sanhedrin are like, you know what? We don't want to wait till tomorrow, till the temple is open. We just want Jesus tried now. We don't want to wait any longer. We've waited long enough. It's time for Jesus to face trial now. And we also see that trials before the Sanhedrin were not supposed to take place at night. So on top of the fact that they're meeting in the wrong place, 
They're not meeting where they're supposed to. They're also meeting at the wrong time. We see the Sanhedrin just don't care about following their own rules. They just want to see Jesus convicted. And we see on top of all of this that Jesus wasn't given a fair trial. Jesus isn't given a lawyer here. He's not given a defense team to to help him out. Jesus isn't even allowed to call his own witnesses to back up himself. Instead, this is a one-sided trial. The Sanhedrin, they already knew what sentence they wanted to give Jesus. They just needed at least two witnesses to come forward with the same accusation against Jesus. Because according to their law, nobody could face the death penalty without two witnesses that were bringing the same accusation against someone. The problem here that they faced, though, was that Jesus hadn't committed any crimes. Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, so there was nobody to come forward to bring a real accusation against Jesus. But don't worry, this did not stop the Sanhedrin. They didn't care that there was no actual evidence or no actual proof that Jesus had committed a crime. Instead, they're like, you know what, we'll just use false witnesses. We'll just have people come in and lie about what Jesus has done, so that way we can get a conviction from him. So we see false witness after false witness come before Jesus and and say all these false things against him, lie about him, accuse him of committing all these crimes that he hasn't done. But what we see is that none of the witnesses that came forward brought the same testimony against him. None of them had the same accusation, and because of this, those testimonies had to all be thrown out. They couldn't be considered valid. So I imagine that the Sanhedrin in this moment, they're probably getting extremely frustrated. Like they had this plan all along to have Jesus arrested. They had this plan to have these false witnesses come forward and bring accusations against him. But when none of them were were meeting, none of them were saying the same thing, I, I imagine they're just getting extremely anxious. They're getting extremely frustrated, like our plan isn't working. What if Jesus is set free? What what if what we did tonight, it, it doesn't matter? But in verse 61 of Matthew 26, we read, Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So these two people, they finally come forward, and they have the same accusation against Jesus. They come forward, and they're like, you see this guy right here, this Jesus? Yeah, he said that he would destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, here, the Sanhedrin, they're probably ecstatic by this news. Like, yes, we finally have what we need against Jesus. We finally have the bare minimum of what we need to convict Jesus of a crime. They didn't care that this evidence was fake. They didn't care that that these people had distorted what Jesus had said. All they cared about was the conviction that they would be able to give Jesus. So then we see Caiaphas, he steps forward addressing the Sanhedrin, addressing the court. And he's like, look, we finally have these accusations against him. He's holding in his happiness And he's like, what should we do with this Jesus? What should we do with this criminal? What sentence should we give him? And the rest of the Sanhedrin, they respond in unison saying, he is worthy of death. But because the Sanhedrin have no authority under Roman law to enforce this conviction, 
They have to take Jesus to face trial before the Roman prefect. So Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, wasting no time, take Jesus to face trial before Pilate. Now, Pilate at this time was the prefect representing Rome in Jerusalem. He's the guy that people brought criminals to to, to give them their final sentencing. He's the guy that, that people brought and gave their accusations against them so that he could give them their final conviction. So Jesus is brought before him. The Sanhedrin bring him to, to Pilate. And Pilate asked them, what charges have you given this man? Like, why is Jesus here in front of me right now? Well, why is this guy here? And the Sanhedrin responds saying that Jesus has been misleading the people of Jerusalem. He's been telling them that they don't need to give tribute to Caesar. That, that they don't need to pay their taxes. And on top of that, he's also called himself the Christ. He's called himself the king of the Jews. So Pilate, after hearing the accusations against Jesus, he goes up to him and he asks him, are you king of the Jews? Like, are you what, you, what they say you are? And Jesus replies, you have said so. Then Pilate has the Sanhedrin bring more evidence against Jesus, more of the accusations that they have. And so they bring to him that he wanted to destroy the temple and he would rebuild it. And when Jesus was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. He didn't defend himself. He didn't fight back. He didn't argue with them. Instead, he sat there silent. And in Matthew 27, 13, we read, Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. You see, in this, in this moment, I, I imagine Pilate is sitting there looking at Jesus, thinking like, why are you not saying anything? Why aren't you defending yourself, Jesus? Why aren't you fighting back? Like, you realize that the crimes they're saying you committed are worthy of death. Like, Jesus, if you don't say anything, you're going to be crucified. You're going to be killed. Don't you want to defend yourself? But Jesus made no answer to the amazement of Pilate. You see, Pilate, he didn't want to condemn Jesus. He recognized Jesus' innocence. He realized that the Sanhedrin were only there because they didn't like Jesus, because they were envious of, envious of him. So Pilate starts to try and think of a way that he can free Jesus, to try and think of a way that he can get Jesus out of this sentencing. And in verse 15, we read, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? So Pilate's like, all right, you know what? I've come up with this idea. I'm going to give the crowd a choice. I'm going to give them a choice between two criminals. They can either choose Jesus the Messiah or they can choose Jesus Barabbas. They can choose a guy who hasn't done anything wrong, who hasn't committed any crimes, or they can, can, they can cho um, choose a guy who's convicted of murder, who is clearly deserving of the punishment he has been given. And when Pilate asked the crowd, who do you want me to release? The crowd all says, Jesus, Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Pilate's sitting there just in shock that they would ask for this. 
The crowd is asking for a convicted murder instead of somebody who is innocent. They're acting for somebody who is clearly deserving of their punishment rather than sending somebody who doesn't deserve to die to be crucified. And when Pilate hears this, he then asks, what should we do with Jesus, the Messiah? In the crowd, they all shout back, crucify him, crucify him. You see, through all of these trials, through all of this, Jesus was treated like a, like a violent criminal. He was involved in trials that involved false witnesses, a predetermined outcome. He was treated unjustly and falsely accused. But during the whole trial, during all of it, Jesus never gave a defense. He never fought back. He never argued with them. Instead, he sat there in silence. And you might be thinking, like, why would he do this? Why would Jesus not say anything? Why would he not fight back? And in Isaiah 53, 7, a chapter we've looked at several times during the series, and a chapter that was written hundreds of years before Jesus' time, says this. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, the scriptures foretold that Jesus would remain silent before his accusers. That he wouldn't be fought back because Jesus wanted to be on the cross. Jesus had his eyes set on the cross and he knew that if he defended himself, if he became free, that he wouldn't get there. So Jesus had to remain silent through all of this. But the people we read about in these stories, Judas, the Sanhedrin, and the crowd in front of Pilate, they didn't like this. You see, they all had something in common. They all expected Jesus to be something different than what he was. You see, they all thought that Jesus was coming to earth to fulfill something different. They thought that Jesus was coming to earth to be a king. They thought that he was coming to earth to set up his earthly kingdom right away. They thought that Jesus was coming to rule, but instead Jesus came to die and because Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they got frustrated with him. They got angry. They turned on him because, because he wasn't who they thought that he would be. But what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for you today sitting there? And the truth is, students, I think a lot of us today have the wrong views of who Jesus is. We all have our own preconceived expectations of who Jesus should be and of what Jesus should do. And if he doesn't meet those expectations, if he doesn't do what we think he should, we get mad at him. We get frustrated with him. We blame him. And some of us, we even walk away from him. You know, some of you in here tonight, you, you might be a person who views Jesus as somebody who can help, help you get what you want. You look at Jesus kind of like your own personal shopping assistant. Somebody who you can come to in prayer and, and ask for something that you want. Like, oh, Jesus, I want that. Or I want that, Jesus. I want that new video game or that new iPhone that came out. And we expect Jesus to answer our requests with yeses. We expect him to give us what we want. And if he doesn't do that, if he doesn't meet that expectation, we get frustrated. We can't believe that, that he would do this. We can't believe that he wouldn't answer our request and we turn on him. 
We sometimes, we question his love for us. We can't believe, like, Jesus, I thought you loved us. I thought you would want what's best for us. Why are you not answering my request? Or some of you in here, you might look at Jesus as a form of protection. You might think that Jesus is just there to protect you from all the bad things in this world. For Jesus to protect your relationships or protect your family. But if something bad happens in one of your relationships or you lose someone you love, you immediately blame Jesus. Like, Jesus, I thought you were here to protect me. I thought you were here to keep me safe. But instead, you, you, you hurt me. Instead, you let somebody I love go. You let one of my relationships end. Why would you do this? Or, you know, maybe some of you in here, you see Jesus as a get-out-of-jail-free card. You look at Jesus as some kind of pass. Like, if you go to church or you follow Jesus, Jesus is there to just help you get out of any situation that you're in. You can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want because you got that Jesus pass. But if something happens, if you get in trouble or something doesn't go the way you expected it to, you immediately blame Jesus. It immediately becomes Jesus' fault because he didn't live up to your expectation. Or, you know, some of you might not even have any expectations anymore. You might have just given up on Jesus. Because in the past, he hasn't answered the way you thought he would answer. Because he hasn't protected you the way you thought he would protect you. And you've just been hurt too much. You've just been let down too much. And you've just given up. You're like, I don't even have any expectations anymore, Jesus. So tonight, students, as we wrap up, I want to ask you, what expectations do you have on Jesus? Maybe it's one of the ones we talked about tonight, or maybe it's something completely different. But as you're sitting there tonight, I want you to think about what expectations you have for Jesus. Because what I want you to see, what I want you to realize, is the expectations that we have on Jesus hurt our relationship with him. The expectations that we have on Jesus hurt our relationship with him. Because when you have an expectation on a relationship, that relationship becomes conditional. The relationship only works when Jesus meets your expectations. And if he doesn't meet those expectations, that relationship starts to crumble. You start to get frustrated with him. You start to get angry with him. You start to blame him. But students, if you have unrealistic expectations of who Jesus is, he will always disappoint you. If you have unrealistic expectations of who Jesus is, you're going to stay angry. You're going to stay bitter. You're going to stay frustrated with him because Jesus didn't come to die on the cross to meet your expectations. He didn't come to die on the cross so that you could feel him meeting all of the expectations that you have on him. You see, Jesus came to die on the cross to meet our greatest need. And our greatest need is forgiveness from sins. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross to meet your expectations. He came to die on the cross to take all sins of everybody on himself so that me and you could find forgiveness, peace, and comfort in him. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross for your expectations. 
So tonight, students, if you have any of these unrealistic expectations on who Jesus is or what he was here to do, tonight I want to encourage you to let those go. To give those expectations up because they are only hurting your relationship with him. They are only causing your relationship with him to not grow. And tonight, students, I don't want that to be you. I don't want you to have these unrealistic expectations of who Jesus is. I want you to get right with Jesus. To look at Jesus as the Savior that he is. To realize that Jesus came to die for our greatest need, not our expectations. So tonight, students, let go of those expectations. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each and every student that is here tonight. God, I pray that you will give us the courage and the boldness to let go of these expectations that we have on you. That God, you didn't come to die on the cross to meet our expectations, but rather, Jesus, you came to die on the cross to meet our greatest need. You came to die on the cross so that each and every one of us in here tonight can find forgiveness, can find comfort, and can find peace in you. So Jesus, I pray tonight for each and every student, if they have an expectation about who you are or or who you came to be, that God, they will let that go. And that God, they will get right with you. I pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.